Salam and welcome to the Indian Ocean series of the Ajem podcast. I'm your host, Lindsay Stevenson. I'm here today with Michael Christopher Lowe, Assistant Professor of History at Iowa State University. He's also the author of Imperial Mecca, Ottoman Arabia, and the Indian Ocean Hajj, coming out with Columbia University Press. Welcome, Chris. Thank you for having me. In the first episode of this series, we discussed how the Indian Ocean was never fully under the control of a single empire. However, a number of empires were active in the Indian Ocean and competed for influence there. So your book looks at tension between the Ottoman and British empires in the late 19th and early 20th century as it played out on the Hajj, which is the annual pilgrimage to Mecca. Can you tell us why these two empires were concerned with the Hajj and furthermore, how the Hajj is connected to the Indian Ocean? At the beginning of the 19th century, as networks of steamship mobility became available and were extended, particularly by British India, basically British India was on the doorstep of the Ottoman Hijaz. And it became increasingly clear from the 1830s, but especially from the 1850s and 60s onward, that British influence in the Red Sea was becoming quite a grave threat to Ottoman interests in the Muslim Holy Land, in the Hijaz. And were increasingly concerned with the extension of British influence over the pilgrimage to Mecca. This is really the greatest extent of the Ottoman Empire. From a logistical standpoint, one of the most difficult places for the empire to reach. And prior to the opening of the Suez Canal, this was quite a challenge for the empire. And in fact, was more connected in some respects at the British Indian Ocean. In terms of thinking about Mecca, we often think of Mecca as a place that's central to Ottoman prestige, obviously, as Khadim al-Haramayn al-Sharifayn, the protector of the two holy places. This was a sort of central pillar of the Ottoman Caliphate. But in fact, Mecca was a quite neglected space in some respects, a distant frontier that the Ottomans struggled to administer. It was traditionally an autonomous province, of course, with layered sovereignty shared with the Sharif of Mecca. And from the 1830s onward for the Ottomans, from the Tanzimat period through the Hamidian period and even to the end of the empire, Ottoman modernization and centralization efforts struggled to take hold in the Hijaz region. This, of course, was complicated by the extension of British extraterritoriality to the region via the Hajj. When you say that the British taking Aden was a sort of wake-up call for the Ottomans, was it the case that Aden was previously a part of the Ottoman Empire or nominally a part? What was it about Aden being in British hands that made them start to get nervous? This was just really a sort of a beginning point from the 1830s onward this sort of introduction of steam traffic between the Red Sea and the Indian Ocean was sort of a catalyst for more conflict between the two empires. At that period, the Ottoman Empire, although they continued to claim Yemen, had not really been active in Yemen since the 17th century. And the sort of reconquest of Yemen in fits and starts between the 1840s and the 1870s, at least in the north, was in some respects a kind of defensive response to the arrival of the British Empire in the Red Sea so close to the Muslim holy places. As steamship traffic took hold and also this sort of extension of extraterritorial interests and consular representation by the British into places like Mocha and Jidda, 
This became an increasingly grave issue for the Ottomans and resulted in some quite violent flashpoints, especially in the 1850s in Jeddah. And so the places that the British are able to really set foot are generally along the water. Mocha is on the coast. Jeddah is on the coast. Were they able to extend further into the interior? Were the Ottomans concerned that that was the plan? Generally speaking, no. Of course, you know, Yemen is not sort of the central part of this book. But in the case of Jeddah, of course, consular representation for the British and French and subsequently other European empires began to take hold in the 1830s. And of course, consular representatives, Christians in particular, were not allowed to leave Jeddah and proceed further into the inland of the Hijaz to the Haramein. Now, this situation became more complicated from the 1880s when the British, sort of realizing that their interests were intensifying with relationship to the pilgrimage, started to appoint doctors to oversee the public health concerns around cholera. And as a result, one of the steps that the British took was to appoint an assistant surgeon named Abdul Razak to at first go and monitor the Hajj for public health concerns. But by 1882, they made the decision to appoint him as a Muslim vice consul. And this served a number of purposes. The idea was that he could provide essentially espionage, that he could provide political information, sort of spy on the Ottomans. But also, as a Muslim, he could move freely to the Haramein and monitor things in Mecca. Of course, this was quickly seen by the Ottomans as a sort of grave threat. The potential, at least, was raised by the Ottoman state that European governments would demand the ability to open a consulate in Mecca. And so they did take steps to sort of restrict the mobility of these Muslim vice consuls. But the general idea there was for the Christian consulate to be able to sort of extend its reach to Mecca. And this became really the de facto way in which British India and then other European states were able to extend their influence. Can you tell us a little bit about what extraterritorial jurisdiction is and how it's being used by European powers and if the Ottomans tried to use claims to jurisdiction over Muslims in Europe at the same time. So extraterritoriality traditionally was actually used as a positive for the Ottoman Empire. The grant of the so-called capitulations was really an inducement to be able to allow non-Muslim traders to move freely in the Ottoman Empire, to do business in the Ottoman Empire in early modern times without the risk of being subject to Ottoman or Islamic legal jurisdiction. Traditionally in the Hijaz, in the original capitulations, it's very clear that the lands of the Hijaz are not subject to the capitulations. That said, the British Empire started to more or less treat Hijaz as subject to the capitulations and started to press for this ability to intervene via their consular representation. Traditionally, we would think of the people who were protégés or working under the sort of umbrella of British or French or Dutch authority to always be Christians. But in the case of Muslims traveling to the Hijaz, now they became subjects of foreign empires. And as a result of this, de facto open for this kind of consular representation. So, for example, if a Muslim pilgrim or sojourner was traveling and happened to be in Mecca, 
and they found themselves in some sort of legal trouble, a dispute uh, over trade. The idea in this era was that the British consulate in Jeddah would have jurisdiction. If they were Indian. In, if, an Indian if, Muslim? If or? Indian Muslim, uh-huh. yes. That's the bulk of these, uh, these cases. So the Ottomans were presented with a new dilemma. The capitulations, obviously, in early modern times, were meant to cover Christians and Jews. No one could have ever conceived of the idea of a Muslim subject of a Christian empire traveling to the Hijaz. Things became much, much more complicated once you had that consular presence involved. Do you find people sort of shopping around to get the best deal from whether it be the Ottomans or the British? Certainly. I mean, I have one case in the book, which I think is sort of the real warning bells starting in the 1850s. Very simple dispute over a boat between two family members, which caps off a wave of violence in 1858 in Jeddah, where the Christian community is actually massacred in Jeddah. And the real flashpoint in many respects was the intervention of the consulate on behalf of the claims of ostensibly a British subject. And that interference crystallized discontent by the Shrifate of Mecca, but in particular, the Hadrami Kuntal community and its negative feelings towards this sort of new influence of consular representation. Let me just ask you to illuminate a Hadrami story here, because it wouldn't be an Indian Ocean story if the Hadramis didn't show up somewhere. What was the unique position of the Hadramis, particularly with regard to this representation and extraterritorial jurisdiction, given that they're Yemeni, maybe Hyderabadi, I mean, they're sort of all throughout the Indian Ocean. So were they able to claim all kinds of different jurisdictions because of that? Yeah, absolutely. One of the more, I guess, famous cases of this sort of malleability, kind of octopus-like tentacles that stretched out across the Indian Ocean in the book is the story of the Asakaf family, or in the Southeast Asian context, Sagaf. In the book, I talk quite a bit about one character, Omar Al-Sakaf. He's involved in the steamship trade from Singapore, and so sort of equally well-positioned in Singapore and also in Jeddah. Of course, the famous Conrad book, Lord Jim, is loosely based on the story of a steamship that began to sink off the Horn of Africa. Its European crew abandons the Malay pilgrims and escape to Aden. 24 hours later, the ship shows up in port. Miraculously, the Malay pilgrims had managed to stabilize the vessel and were rescued and towed into port. And this became a real sort of international scandal across the British Empire. This was sort of the opening event. And Sakoff's influence over the Indian Ocean Hajj in terms of ownership of steamships, but also in terms of provisioning of resources, he became deeply involved in a scheme to basically package all of the services surrounding the Hajj, pilgrimage guides, mutawafin, access to water, ticketing on steamships. He became a sort of central player in organizing all of these services, but also establishing a kind of cartel system over pilgrimage services where the Ottoman governor, Sharifate, various European figures would all get a cut of the increased prices produced by this monopoly. And this is coming all the way from Singapore or starting in Bombay or was that one of the, I presume it's one of the stops. Singapore and Malay and Javanese, the Jawi pilgrims, were sort of the main target of the beginnings of this system. They actually attempted to extend it to Indian pilgrims. And of course, prices were inflated as a result of the expansion of this system. 
But of course, the sort of posture of the British Empire towards the extension of this cartel system towards Indian pilgrims, it aroused the attention of the British consulate for sure. But even after consular authorities and the Ottomans became aware of this, everyone had their fingers in this money that was being made from this system. So it's very difficult to say that this was a, a Sharifate problem, a Hadrami problem, an Ottoman problem, because they were all in some ways benefiting from the system, intertwined okay. with one another. So this really complicates this antagonism because on the ground, the relationships were quite different. You mentioned in your book that the Ottomans try to get Indian Muslims to invoke the empire in their Friday sermons. To what extent was this just about a kind of spiritual authority or were the Ottomans looking to invoke this extraterritorial jurisdiction? I mean, was that the route that they were going in? So there are a couple of things, I think, that were simultaneously happening. With the introduction of print technologies, lithographs, the availability of many, many more vernacular newspapers across the Muslim world. One of the things that scholars like James Gelvin and Niall Green, but also in other contexts, Jamil Iden have talked about, is the sort of growth of the consciousness of the, the idea of the Muslim world was in some respects a kind of technological phenomenon. The sort of quickening pace of communications technologies from 1850s, 60s, but certainly by the end of the century, was making it more possible for Muslims in the Ottoman Empire, in the Arab world, in India and elsewhere to be able to think of themselves as a sort of singular entity, an ummah, in ways that they hadn't previously necessarily been able to. So that that's kind of one element. In terms of the idea of Ottoman prestige, in the colonial Muslim world. When Sultan Abdul Hamid II takes over in 1876, this is really a bit of a tipping point in Anglo-Ottoman relations. In 1877-78, there's of course the Russo-Ottoman War, starts to really sour what had been a quite fruitful relationship for the previous several decades. In the Treaty of Paris in 1856, and of course, uh, this is the outcome of the Crimean War, Britain in particular had been the sort of guarantor of Ottoman territorial integrity against Russian aggression. But in 1877-78, the British refused to act on the behalf of the Ottomans and signaled a kind of new frostiness in their relationship. And of course, at this time, this coincides with the growth of these, for example, Urdu vernacular newspapers. And so Ottoman propaganda efforts via the Hajj intensified. Stories were being passed via Ottoman consular representatives to India and other parts of the Indian Ocean. And there was an effort to fundraise for war efforts on behalf of the Ottomans in places like India. And of course, this mention of the invocation of the Sultan's name in the khutbah and the Friday services, all of these manifestations became increasingly important to the Ottomans. Now, Europeans were constantly involving themselves in the affairs of Ottoman subjects, in particular non-Muslim subjects. And so Sultan Abdul Hamid, and I think in a broader sense, Ottoman society and the, the Ottoman state, started to see the role of the caliphate as providing a certain level of security and a voice, really, on the international stage, speaking on behalf of colonized Muslims in other parts of the world, whether it be a Russian Central Asia, the Dutch East Indies, French Algeria, or British India, that really the caliphate became almost an international legal diplomatic 
instrument. And this is not to minimize the sincerity of the feelings of solidarity that we typically talk about when we think about phenomenon like pan-Islam. But there is a way in which the literature on pan-Islam, by sort of signaling this devotion among colonial Muslims to the Ottoman state, misses the more strategic elements and the more secular and quotidian elements of the instrumentalization of the caliphate in international affairs. The Ottomans aren't necessarily looking to spread their rule to these areas, for sure. I mean, that's completely outside the realm of possibility. But are they trying to work within the legal systems? I mean, do they show up in the same way that the British show up in Jeddah, for example, setting up a consulate and trying to make demands on behalf of their subjects? Do the Ottomans claim that the Muslims of India are their subjects? The Ottomans, especially from the 1870s onward, do increasingly have consular presence in India and Southeast Asia and elsewhere. So building an Indian Ocean consular network. Now, typically this is framed as pan-Islamic outreach, which I think is a red herring and an artifact really of the sort of paranoia of the colonial archive and the idea that the Ottomans had some territorial ambition or that more likely that they wanted to foment some sort of anti-colonial rebellion. Now, to be clear, Sultan Abdul Hamid would periodically recognize this paranoia as a a kind of leverage, but it was a threat that was only operable when not used, right? Because there was no way in which the Ottoman state really could act on this. And so I think the, the more fruitful way to think of consular representation or expressing claims on behalf of Muslims is trying to sort of level the playing field on the international stage. And in fact, they're learning these practices because they're being deployed against them by European states. And so they're mirroring the same bureaucratic and international legal procedures. And I think that this is a really important point because oftentimes we exceptionalize Muslim states in general, but the Ottoman Empire in particular, and ascribe religious motivations to quite quotidian political desires. So by saying that this is pan-Islam, we tend to lose sight of the very legitimate reasons for them trying to achieve some political representation for themselves, but also speak up for an ummah that had been almost totally colonized. Can you reflect on the centrality of Bombay in both the spread of pan-Islamic ideas and Islamic modernism, but also as a central trading node in the Indian Ocean? And are those two things related? The issue of pan-Islam, even the terminology of pan-Islam, I mean, this is a term that's coined by the British Foreign Office, and we can trace various Ottoman or Urdu or Arabic equivalents that convey the same concept. But I think fundamentally, the idea of pan-Islam is an artifact of certain kinds of colonial fears about the Ottoman Empire's role in anti-colonial radicalism or sort of supranational ambitions of the Ottoman state. But there are two separate strands here. On the one hand, again, this is partly an artifact. I mean, you mentioned Bombay, but a steamship node, a communications node, highly literate space, right? Uh, more newspaper activity. These are 
I think they're manifestations of technology rather than any one political moment necessarily. Now, on the other hand, there's an Ottoman state project. There is an Eastern policy. There is an attempt to manipulate public opinion across the Islamic world as a sort of defensive shield against British and or other European aggression. So there is a sense that by promoting the public image making of Sultan Abdul Hamid, that the Ottoman Empire can protect its territorial sovereignty by making European empires think twice about taking aggressive actions that will displease their large Muslim populations. So there is a two elements to this working kind of in tandem. Now, one problem on the Ottoman side is that we tend to not be as, I think, sophisticated as we should be about thinking about the way in which the Ottomans were deploying this. Ottomans certainly knew that this was a very thin veneer. And I also sometimes think that we overemphasize this pan-Islamic image-making. I can think of a couple of very influential books. I mean, Kamal Karpat and Selim Deringil's work were very influential in making us associate the Hamidian regime with this kind of image-making. But pan-Islam wasn't necessarily always a coherent policy, and enacting this ideology often ran directly into the goals of centralization, modernization, governmentality, territorial sovereignty, the demands of international law, questions of surveillance. So, for example, imposing passport regulations on Muslims. These were things that ordinary Muslims didn't want to necessarily deal with, pay for, apply for. They didn't want their mobility and access to Hajj to be restricted. But yet, this was something that the Ottoman state needed to defend its borders, uh, to protect against European extraterritoriality, to monitor outbreaks of disease, to count pilgrims, for example. And Europeans were very shrewd. British Empire said, okay, fine, Ottomans, you want to impose passport regulations? We will offer passports, but we will not require them. So thousands of Indians show up in Jeddah with no passport. There's this gamesmanship in which officials in India or the consulate in Jeddah would say, we'll hang this policy on the sultan. He'll be responsible for these maneuvers that Indian Muslims dislike. So the alignment with the ordinary, everyday workings of pilgrimage and state-making didn't always connect with pan-Islamic ideals, Mm. let's say. Mm. That actually brings up a really interesting aspect of your book, which is that the British are actually way more hands-off about regulating Hajj than the Ottomans are. So do you want to talk a little bit more, get into those details of quarantine? Yeah. I think one of the things that has been a slight frustration, and I won't speak for her, but I'll mention Alale John's forthcoming book, Spiritual Subjects, coming out from Stanford University Press. I think both of our books sort of tackle this question of mobility, citizenship, nationality, monitoring and managing the Hajj. But they attempt to sort of insert the Ottomans into the center of this story. There have been fantastic works in the last 10 or so years that have really put this colonial story of the pilgrimage to Mecca center stage. The frustration there is that the hole in the center of the story has been the one real Muslim empire. And none of these colonial histories that work from the outside in are able to really articulate the difference between claiming to be the protector of pilgrimage if you're the British Empire and actually being the Khadim al-Haramayn Sharafain, the protector of the two holy places in that more traditional sense. 
the weight of that responsibility was quite different. And the Ottoman states simultaneously had to manage and run the Hijaz province, the, the territory, territory, the yeah. territory itself to manage its semi-autonomous relationship with the Sharifate, to deal with potential conflicts between pilgrims of foreign states and Bedouins. So they're, they're managing many more moving parts as a result of this. One of the things that I think has been a little bit of a misnomer in the previous literature on the Hajj has been the idea that the story of the Hajj has been one of sanitation and security. I mean, this was a sort of famously a really fantastic article by William Roth that sort of cements this set of concerns, which certainly you see in the colonial archive. And virtually all of us who have written about this question since then have dealt with those questions in some way or the other. But one of the things that I think is a little bit mistaken is the idea that this was a sort of colonial surveillance project only. The other end of the spectrum is the sort of Ottoman interest in protecting itself. So if we think about the devastating cholera pandemics that begin to sweep across the world from 1820s, but especially 1831-32 onward, And then the several great examples, 1865, 66, a number in the 1890s, really the 19th century becomes a century of cholera and public health concerns. And the Ottomans, in many respects, become the recipients of the kind of ecological fallout that is happening in British India. So all of the sort of massive ecological changes, changes in transportation patterns that are sweeping across India, road construction, new water infrastructures, India experiences massive uptick in mortality, not just from cholera, from plague, from malaria, and a variety of other diseases. But in the case of cholera and to a certain extent plague, the Ottomans sort of saw themselves as sort of being victimized by this sort of constant flow of disease coming from colonial India. Now, for the British, they didn't want to set themselves up as being seen as prohibiting Muslims from making the Hajj. So they took a largely laissez-faire approach to Hajj regulation. The Ottomans, on the other hand, had a vested interest in protecting their own subjects and territories. And so the sort of desperation, you can see it in Ottoman writings, is why are the British not doing anything to prevent this? Ottoman officials often felt like this reluctance on the part of the British to properly monitor and control cholera was an almost, almost a eugenic policy. I mean, one official talked about that this was a sort of way to cast off sick and poor pilgrims as concerted policy. Now, I don't necessarily think that was the total intent, but it felt for the Ottomans as if they were being handed an enormous set of public health and security challenges by the British Empire, who was unwilling to take aggressive steps to curb some of these ills. So it seems like the changes in technology, the scale of people moving, necessitates a new kind of administration of the territory, but also of this very deep ritual. I mean, I feel like the Hajj in history is not, it's not something you necessarily come back from. This idea that people would need to have a ticket to go and to come back seems very modern to me. You know, people are supposed to have all of their affairs in order so that if they go on Hajj and don't return, that their family isn't burdened by some debt. This idea that they needed a ticket to return, it feels very much like a new direction. 
Yeah, I, th- I mean, I think a couple of things. Yes, transportation and the scope and scale, the sheer numbers of Indian pilgrims, Southeast Asian pilgrims, but the total number of pilgrims, it really exploded exponentially between the mid-19th century and World War One. And as a result of this, I mean, I think you're you're sort of hitting on something that's absolutely right. The, the way in which the territory itself of the Hijaz had to be governed, the reach of the state in terms of being able to provide surveillance technologies, public health services, to be able to count with some accuracy the number of individuals flowing through the territory, and to be able to manage their relationships or their interactions with locals changed quite dramatically. I mean, the other thing here is the stakes of the relationship. Pre-1850, you're dealing with subjects of the Mughal Empire, who whatever antagonisms the Ottomans and the Mughals may have had, they're still both Sunni Muslim states. So the order of magnitude of the potential conflicts was quite different. In terms of the sort of the modernness, I think one of the things that you allude to is the change in terms of documentary practices. I mean, that, that, that part of the Hajj, we can easily sort of pinpoint the time and the place where all of that changed. After 1865-66, this huge cholera pandemic sweeps across Hijaz and hits Istanbul. It's known in Turkish the Buyuk cholera, you know, the, the, the big, the big, the great cholera, right? This really galvanizes international attention. There's an international sanitary conference that's hosted by the Ottoman state in Istanbul, and this really catalyzes international attention and the need for a quarantine system. But of course, even this effort was balanced on the backs of the Ottomans. They were tasked with running this system to monitor pilgrimage networks and their own borders. On the one hand, this was a burden. On the other hand, it also was a way for the Ottoman state to underscore its territorial sovereignty by being able to manage its borders, right? So these things are kind of Janus-faced in that regard. What is the similarity between the British administration of the princely states in India and the Ottoman administration of the Hejaz? And as a second part of that question, where does the Hejaz fit in territorially? Because it strikes me that at the same time that it's becoming more connected to the Indian Ocean, it's also becoming more Ottoman. In an early modern era, one of the, I think, great strengths of the Ottoman Empire was its flexibility to have these semi-autonomous relationships, different kinds of relationships between the center and various provinces and local notables. And that was part of what made the Ottoman Empire what it was, what made it work. Mm -hmm. Layered sovereignties, Mm -hmm. shared sovereignties. Uh And this was certainly the case, the long traditional relationship between the Ottoman Sultan's suzerainty and the day-to-day local administration of the Hijaz on the part of the Sharif Mecca. Once we get into the Tanzimat period from the 1830s onward, of course, the Ottoman state has a significant desire to both homogenize state practices, but also to centralize. One of the things that I think we've not done a great job of explaining is how that process works after the Tanzimat period. We tend to sort of get to the Hamidian period and we talk about pan-Islam or we talk about other things, right? That modernization process and that centralization process, bureaucratization of the state, strengthening of governmentality actually accelerates. And the goals of the Tanzimat era are actualized under Abdul Hamid. They're made into real policy during that period. So we start to see from the early 1880s, the Hamidian state starts to reevaluate and think, well, 
Tansmat practices didn't work on the frontiers. We need different approaches, flexible approaches. And so we start to see a sort of genre of thinking about Hijaz, Libya, Iraq, Yemen. How do we manage those provinces? Well, one of the things the Ottoman state didn't want to have happen was for those semi-autonomous provinces. There's a category, actually, in Ottoman statecraft, the Eolete Mumtaze, the privileged provinces that have these special relationships and sort of semi-autonomous status. But the main goal for Ottoman statesmen thinking about a place like Hijaz was to not let it go the way of Egypt, to not become a sort of independent kingdom, a Khedivate, and then eventually drift into the hands of annexation or protectorate. And this was really the trajectory of a lot of the Eolete Muntaze over the course of the 19th century, is that they become increasingly independent and or entangled with European interests. And so you can see the Hijaz is viewed by Ottoman statesmen through this wider lens constellation of concerns about the integrity of the empire. On the other hand, the British Empire sees the Hijaz very much in the same way that it sees princely states. So, of course, we know about princely states in India itself, but we tend to forget the Indian Empire was an empire that had a series of satellites in terms of sheikhdoms, residencies, various kinds of protectorates from Aden all the way around the Arabian Peninsula into the Gulf. Now, if we think about British declarations over various tribal entities in the Persian Gulf, for example, what would be the difference between those individuals that they're claiming this protection over and a semi-autonomous kingdom like the Sharifate of Mecca? And so they very much saw the Sharifate as a potential place that could be peeled away. And then the added benefit for that, for a very paranoid self-conscious British state that had the world's largest Muslim population, if you peeled away the Sharifate of Mecca, then you could sever the territorial link between the Caliphate and the Hijaz. And so this was a fantasy that you see pop up again and again and again from the 1870s, really sort of reaches a climax around the Russo-Ottoman War and the early 1880s. But it's an idea among British officialdom intelligentsia that never quite fully goes away and then is resurrected ultimately in the context of World War I with the Arab Revolt and the sponsorship of the Sharif of Mecca. So this sort of dream of adding the Sharifate as one of these princely states was a natural extension of everything that was happening all across the Red Sea, Persian Gulf, and the Indian Ocean and India itself. So should we consider the Hejaz to be a part of the Indian Ocean world, or does it become a part of the Indian Ocean world? Is this a product of these technological innovations in the 19th century, or is there something deeper that makes the Hejaz a part of the Indian Ocean? If we look back long before this period to the early modern period, Jitta, its nickname is the Bride of the Sea. And that nickname doesn't come from the Red Sea. It comes from its trade relationship and importance on spice trade routes. And we can look at Mamluk interests in the Red Sea and the Indian Ocean and then early Ottoman interests as well. And certainly we can see how the Hijaz interfaces with the Indian Ocean. In the 19th century, of course, the introduction of the steamship makes access across the Indian Ocean faster and cheaper. Another element of this is not just pilgrims or trade, but actual migration. So pilgrims, mujavarin or mujawarin, people who stay. 
And if we look at Mecca as a space, I mean, this was one of the things that made the Ottomans very, very nervous. And in fact, the opening few pages of the book, I talk about this Ottoman intelligence report about Indians in Mecca and how the population had skyrocketed in recent years. By some estimates, at minimum, the population of Mecca around the turn of the 20th century was at least 25% Indian. And that's not even including other Indian Ocean, Jawis or others, or Central Asians, for example, another, I think, notable group. So the fact that huge percentages of the business interests in Jeddah and Mecca were controlled by either Indians or Jawis, that tells you quite a bit. But also the actual composition of the locals in Mecca were Indian Ocean as well. And I think this is a sort of interesting historiographic problem. I think we're only just now grappling with what to do with the entire Arabian Peninsula. It's been left out of the Middle East historiography. So how we position... The Hijaz, but a lot of other places in the Arabian Peninsula, has been pretty poorly theorized. There are a handful of people who certainly have tried and are aware of this, but we need a lot more work. It shouldn't be a question of whether Hijaz is or is not part of the Indian Ocean. It puzzles me why South Asianists can look out from India and say, uh, we can talk about East Africa or we could talk about Southeast Asia or the Middle East. But Middle East historians, when they look out at the Indian Ocean, they don't see those same connections or they're not sure how to parse them and feel a little bit more uncomfortable. I mean, for me, Indian Ocean has been a method to sort of recover an understudied and misunderstood part of the Middle East. Thanks so much for joining us. Thank you for having me. And to our listeners, thank you for your engagement with this series and feel free to continue the conversation on social media. If you enjoyed this episode, you can pick up Chris's book, which has just recently come out with Columbia University Press. It is Imperial Mecca, Ottoman Arabia, and the Indian Ocean Hajj. 